0: a chance to check in your kids on the way in this morning. We have K to 5 ministry upstairs. Uh, You're welcome to take them up the stairs and meet the team there, and they will happily check you in. Awesome. Kids, be off. Be off. All right. All right. whether you 're joining us online this morning or whether you 're here in person, my name is Jordan and i 'm one of the pastors here and I have the opportunity to share with us from the scriptures today and uh, before I do that, I just have uh, two brief announcements to make uh, two rather exciting announcements uh, that'm I'm, i 'm uh, stoked would be the surfer word uh, to share with you uh, This, or last Sunday, and you may have seen on social media or in your inbox yesterday, last Sunday, Pastor Jerry uh, was given an award. He was named by World Vision a hero for the children, having been awarded the Reverend Dr. Ken McMillan Award. This is an award which recognizes an individual who has demonstrated Christian faith in action, a heart for leadership, and a commitment to the church. And if you had the chance to watch Pastor Jerry's reception speech, and if you haven't, it's on our YouTube channel or on our website. Uh, Pastor Jerry receives the award on behalf of the Soul Sanctuary community, noting the continued generosity of these people here in their sponsorship of children through World Vision. Over the last 10 years, uh, through the work in two Kenyan regions, World Vision has collected over a million dollars from the Soul Sanctuary community for ongoing aid efforts there. And so, despite the fact that Pastor Jerry is not here with us this morning, uh, we celebrate his reception of this award, which demonstrates a true reflection of his character and of his heart for compassion and justice. I think you can applaud. I think he's not here, but I don't even know if he's watching online, but if he is, then this applause is for you. Okay, cool. Uh, the, the next announcement that I'm, I'm excited to make pertains to an exciting addition to our staff team here at Seoul. Uh, we're really excited to welcome Pastor Beth Braun to our team in the role of Family Ministries Pastor. The role of Family Ministries Pastor is a new role that we've created here at Seoul, uh, after an assessment of our needs and Pastor Beth's strengths. And we're really excited to welcome her to our team. Uh, Pastor Beth has been married to her husband, Kevin, for 28 years. She has two kids, Erica and Riley, a son-in-law, Jacob, and two grandkids, Oakley and Nora. Uh, Beth has over 20 years of ministry experience working with kids, with youth, and with families, and she's currently pursuing her Master's of Arts in ministry leadership. Pastor Beth will be joining our team to oversee children's and youth ministries, working alongside Pastor Andrew, Piper, and Alyssa. And her purpose at Seoul will be to focus on how we as a church can ensure that our parents are equipped to be the primary disciple makers of their children. And you'll notice Pastor Beth joining us on Sunday mornings to worship uh, before joining our team full time at the beginning of March. And you'll see what Pastor Beth looks like <laughs> and, uh, uh, and some info about her in your inbox this week and on social media. So Pastor Beth, welcome to the team. Here at Soul Sanctuary, we take a book of the Bible and we preach through it. As we do that, we are confronted verse by verse with the reality of Scripture. And it's quite nice because it does not allow us to conveniently ignore the difficult passages. In October, we started a series and we took a break over the Advent season, but we started a series in the book of First Peter. And we've been wrestling through First Peter and, and Today, we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 4, right in the middle of the book. If you were with us last week, you would have heard Pastor Jerry speak of persecution and of suffering. This is a theme that emerges in the book of Peter as Peter is writing to Christians who are undergoing the beginnings of persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire and of their neighbors, So last week was about persecution and suffering, and then this week is this week, we'll get to it in a moment, and next week is about persecution and suffering even more. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, is building a theology of suffering, and in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 to 11, which we will touch on now, he takes a brief break from talking explicitly about suffering, and he is teaching us something. Let's go to the scriptures together. First Peter, chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is near. The end is coming. You probably saw that posted on Facebook this week, am I right? Cool. Uh, The end of all things is near. This is how Peter starts this section. In fact, the anchoring everything to come based on the reality that the end is near coming. When we look at Peter, Peter very truly believed in some sense or another that the end of history, that the end of recorded time was drawing to a conclusion. Again, this is the anchor. Everything that he said is based on this statement. We need to understand what he is getting at. See, the Christian scriptures lay a framework for the end of all things. The the, the Bible, as a collection of books inspired by the Holy Spirit, written for us today, tell of the end of all things. That that Jesus Christ, the, the crucified, resurrected Jesus, has ascended into heaven and will come again to renew his creation and set the world to rights. This is a Christian belief that has been held for 2,000 years. That Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, and that in doing that, he will deal death its final blow as he renews and restores our world. We see in the middle of First Peter chapter four, a statement about the future, a belief that Christ is returning as judge, and that this moment will come soon. But it's 2,000 years later, and we are still eagerly, uh, eagerly awaiting this moment to arrive. And so we ask, right at the outset of our scripture passage, was Peter wrong? Was the end not quite near, even though Peter thought it was near? And to answer this question, we need to dive into the time and place and space of Peter. What's he doing here? Peter is writing to Christians. Many Jewish converts to Christianity, uh, uh, Christians spread across the empire— who are beginning to face localized persecution. If you remember back to our intro on the book of 1 Peter, we talked about how at the time that Peter is writing is at the same time that Rome more or less burns down, the great fire of Rome under the emperor Nero. And after that great fire, we know from Roman historian Tacitus that the emperor Nero blames this fire on the Christians and I quote, uh, takes out, I don't quote there, takes out the most exquisite of tortures, exquisite of tortures is how Tacitus put it, on the Christians because he blames them for burning down the city. So the time and space that Peter's writing in is a time when the most exquisite of tortures are being carried out on Christians. We know that the first localized persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire is beginning to break out before the empire really begins to persecute in the next couple hundred years. It's not surprising to us then that in the face of such persecutions that Peter thought the end of all things is around the corner. But we also can look to the scriptures and see that this is a common theme that emerges in the scriptures. In prophetic history, in the Old Testament, we see that when this idea of persecution breaks out against God's people, that there is a sense of immediacy that God will return as judge to save his people. That the God of justice surely will intervene when his people are oppressed. This sense of immediacy carries into the New Testament, and it is even revealed itself in the writings of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on which day your Lord is coming. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect when we look into the, the Old Testament apocalyptic writings of Daniel, when we look at a lot of the minor prophets that we had gone through this summer when we talked through the minor prophets, we see this sense of expectation that God is actually near and that the end of all things is coming soon. And Peter continues in this tradition, in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, Jesus Christ is coming soon. Yet when we moderns hear something like "The end is near," we have a tendency to dismiss it as conjecture, don't we? You know, we've seen televangelists proclaim a ten, or, or uh, proclaim a specific date that Christ will return, only for them to be time and a t- time and time and time again proved to be foolish. Uh, We have seen the dark underbelly of evangelicalism in the United States, looking for an antichrist around every corner. And for most of us, we become numb. And we begin to just tune it all out. Talk of the end, why bother? Here we are 2,000 years later. But for those 2,000 years, Christians have believed the same thing, that the end is is near that christ could return at any moment and the truth is that there is a time that christ will return and that it can't be ignored and first peter chapter 4 demonstrates to us this reality that we can't ignore it rather there's a way to live in expectation of his coming i think what is sure is that we and I'll say probably quite specifically as Canadians in our current context, don't have a good grasp on what it means to live with the end in mind. I think we've been lulled to sleep by what the sociologist Christopher Lash coined as the myth of progress. The idea is this, that somehow, whether through better methods, better techniques, Uh, better therapy, better self-development, better science, better technology, that the world is actually getting better. And I, I think that we're, we live in a way which demonstrates that we're caught in this belief, the idea that somehow the right, if we find the right path, we can arrive at some version of utopia, that we can all coexist in perfect harmony, that we can all get along. Now, to be fair, we surely see how things get better through science and technology. I mean, these three things. Think of our ability to eradicate disease, to heat Winnipeg homes efficiently in the winter, and to microwave a burrito. Am I right? Think of those three things, science and technology. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And in many ways, I mean, think of your iPhone for a quick minute. That that iPhone can process information that serves you well, and 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 we couldn't picture 50 years ago. I mean, 20 years ago, practically, that that could be a reality. Things are getting better. Things are getting faster. Things are getting stronger. But we've taken a scientific idea and we've applied it to our moral our social and to our ethical environments where it doesn't quite fit that given the right amount of time and the right techniques that everything is going to be better, that all those bad things are going to begin to disappear. But we have to ask ourselves, is humanity truly getting better? I think the atrocities of the 20th century, if they taught us anything, it's that the human heart, absent of the transformative power of Jesus Christ, is deceitful, wicked, and self-serving. And that on that front, not much has changed. So while technology and science have brought us incredible advances, and these incredible advances should be celebrated as they are human creativity, which reflects the creativity of their Creator... They have yet to find a cure for the wickedness of the human heart. They have yet to find a cure for our sinful state. Now, when we do things better, or when violence is quelled, or when peace arrives, or when the sick are made well, We recognize as Christians that it's not because of human progress that ends in some version of utopia, but it's actually a divine grace on behalf of God our Father, the God of all grace and of justice. Because as sinners, we have a limited capacity to bring about good on our own accord. Yet following in the way of Jesus in our lives on this earth, we labor hard for justice and for peace. But it's God who will ultimately bring about these changes. And this is why we pray, and we sang it in one of the songs this morning, this is why we pray, your kingdom come. right? We don't do your kingdom come, we pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We understand the kingdom that Christ has in heaven and his desire for its establishment on earth. The best way to think about that is that the culture of heaven can be brought to earth. Yet we don't do this by ourselves as Christians. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It is a work of God the Father as we appeal to him to inspire our efforts. And Peter illustrates this to us a little bit later when he starts talking about speaking and serving. That we don't do it on our own strength. Turn on the news for one day. Or better yet, take a good, long look inside your own heart, and you'll see that we're far from any version of utopia, that our moral judgments are clouded, that our social lives are dysfunctional, and that our ethical decision-making lacks any common anchor. the myth of progress, I think, has inflicted us in the church where we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I mean, when I wrote this, I was just preaching to myself. I was talking to Mike just before this. Like, every message I, I preach is just preaching to myself. So, maybe I'll personalize this a little bit for you, and you can personalize it for yourself. The myth of progress has infected me, Jordan Michelski where I proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior, but I'm not really sure why I need a Savior, and I live as if I'm my own Lord. You know, I've forgotten that the end is near. And I've forgotten that the arc of history culminates in Christ's triumphant return and not in my self-achieved perfection. And here's why this matters. If we forget that the end is near, this immediacy that that was in the Old Testament prophets, this immediacy found in the life and teachings of Jesus, this immediacy that's reflected in, in letters like 1 Peter and by the Apostle Paul and the writers of the New Testament, if we forget this immediacy that the end is near, if we forget that Christ will return again, we will lose perspective on what the most important thing in our lives is. The worship of God. And what happens instead when we lose our sense of urgency is we begin to make idols of temporary things. We begin to make idols of politics where it becomes our chief obsession and object of worship. We begin to make idols of money, of work, of reputation, of success, where we do everything we can for the dollar. We begin to make idols of individuality and our own self-expression and the way that we are unique. We begin to make idols, idols that stand in the way of worshiping our Creator. A loss of immediacy changes our priorities. And this is what Peter knows. He's saying in the face of suffering and persecution, remember that the end is near. In the face of suffering and persecution, tune in to the fact that the most important thing is your worship of Jesus Christ. And then he gives the church the rest of the passage, which is four exhortations, four specific instructions, four things to do in light of the eventual return of Christ. And by doing these four things, we then remain grounded in the reality of Christ with our lives oriented towards proper worship of Christ. And, and think back to Peter's audience here, reading or hearing this letter read for the first time. Why is it so important for them to remain grounded in the reality of Christ? Because death is at their doorstep. Because suffering is their reality. Because comfort seems far off. Because progress to them the idea of societal progress is laughable, because Christ is truly all they have. So Peter says, the end of all things is near, and he gives his first exhortation, which is to pray. He says, therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. As a follower of Christ, we must keep ourselves mentally and spiritually alert, and we must have an effective prayer life. You know, the myth of progress fools you into believing that if you have the right strategy or the right treatment or the right therapy, or or even the right friends, that you're going to get to the place that you need to be. You're going to get to the place that's going to solve all of your problems. And I mean, this is coming from me, the ultimate pragmatist. Like, if there's a problem, I believe there's a solution, okay? Just who I am. It's built into my DNA. But, but we all will face, at some point, problems we can't solve. What happens when death comes knocking at your door? What happens when the suffering, either emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, is excruciating... What happens when that profound sense of brokenness is present? What then? What strategy are you going to implement to dig yourself out of your own grave? Peter tells us to live in relationship with God, to be alert, to keep our minds sober, and to pray. And through prayer, we enter into the presence of a holy God, and we have relationship with Him. Oftentimes, Christians, both new and mature, will come and sit in the office and tell me that they feel far from God. And the first question I ask them is, when was the last time you prayed with another Christian? When was the last time you prayed with another Christian? Christian. Now, often, and we're, we're listening to Peter speak here, and we're interpreting him through our Western Canadian lens of individuality, right? That Peter's writing to me. But he's writing to the church. And so what does he tell the church to do together? He tells them to pray together. And if you're not in the regular habit of praying with other people, it's time to begin. Peter is saying, the end of all things is near, therefore pray together, pray with each other, pray for each other, pray. He then moves on to his second exhortation, and he says, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Above all, love each other. The centrality of love here, it's the above all statement. He's saying, everything else I've said here, this is what matters most. Above all, love each other deeply. And we see this also in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. He's saying, love each other. A church that is threatened by persecution, a church that suffers, must love one another because love covers over a multitude of sins. Okay, what's he getting at here? The reality of life is that when hardships arise, relationships are strained. And there needs to be something, a mutual commitment that anchors us to each other when the relationship is strained. I don't know if this is your story or not, but COVID divorce rates are really, really high. I was talking to a gentleman in our community yesterday whose wife's a lawyer and who was talking about the backlog of legal aid cases and that divorce is coming. Why? Because when things get tough, the cracks turn into fractures and the fractures turn into breaks. And what do we need as the church What do we need in each other? We need something that anchors us together, that when the hard times come, we bend but don't break. We need what Peter calls love. We must prioritize loving one another, the person sitting next to you, the person across the room from you. We must prioritize loving one another for the sake of the other. We don't do it just for ourselves. We don't love to receive We love because we are commanded to, as we preserve the peace among us, as we, in the face of persecutions, of sufferings, like Peter's audience is enduring, find ourselves resilient because we have each other. And there are social implications to loving one another above all. When love is our primary ethic, we will look different than the rest of the world. Behind the decisions that we we make, we will be motivated by something different, by love. And what love will allow us to do, as, as it covers over a multitude of sins, is to be more easily able to forgive one another when we inevitably hurt each other. His third exhortation. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is a very specific way that we show love to one another. We make people feel welcome. But we meet their needs. We receive them into our homes and we provide a place of fellowship and acceptance. We meet their needs. Ah, cool. I got one for you. Um, Tomorrow at 6 p.m., I know you're all very, very busy people, right? Uh, Somebody clear their calendar, maybe four of you, please, to join our team to help our refugee family move. You can meet here or or come contact the office or contact me tomorrow at 6 p.m. This This is hospitality. This is meeting the needs of our refugee family. back to it. We invite people into our homes. We provide a place of fellowship, of acceptance, hospitality. And he says, do it without grumbling. It's like the quality of hospitality is not strange, right? Like you can't just conjure hospitality and you ever ever been at somebody's house and they don't want you there? (laughs) You're like, I know where the door is. Don't do it with grumbling, but offer people into your home with an open heart The Christian church has always been known for its hospitality, and we must hold to it. It's an an exhortation. Paul is giving it as an imperative. We must be hospitable to one another. What is the Lord's Supper but eating together around a table? You know, in, in, a, in a work called the Epistle to Diognetus, a hundred years after Christ, it's kind of an apologetic on, on Christians in the first century, in, in the early second century. It talks about who Christians are. It's written by a Christian, but, but demonstrates who Christians are and who Christians are not. And you know what one of the lines is from it? They share their food, but not their wives. And so we kind of laugh at that, like, yeah, okay. But think of the significance of this. In a society that shared their wives but not their food, the Christians were known to share their food but not their wives. And and what's demonstrated is two things. Number one, obviously a Christian sexual ethic. But on the flip side, hospitality. That they shared what was theirs with other people was a notable thing to include. Last week in the atrium, I was, like, scanning cards and checking people in. And in that moment, I heard behind me one family invite another family over for lunch. And I'm like, in this, are we in a post-COVID world? I don't know. In this COVID world, that's what we need. Invite somebody over for lunch. This is hospitality. As we come together around food around a table. We eat together. We practice the love that Peter is talking about as we hear each other's stories, as we come to learn each other's histories, as we see what God is doing in the people sitting around us. Peter gives into his four, or goes into his fourth exhortation, which is to exercise your gifts. He says in verse 10, each of you, should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be glorified or God may be praised through Jesus Christ. When we Went through the book of 1 Corinthians and we taught through it. We, there, was, there was a section, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14, where Paul the Apostle writes extensively about spiritual gifts. And what does he do right in the middle of 12 to 14? He gives us the most famous wedding love passage, right? 1 Corinthians 13 talks all about love. But where is that passage located? It's located between passages on spiritual gifts. And this is no accident. And Peter is picking up the exact same thing here. He's saying, above all, love each other. How do you do that? You eat together. You pray together. And you serve one another. You serve one another. You identify in the context of community what the gifts are that God has given you. And you employ those gifts in the service of, again, the people sitting around you. And maybe that looks like in the organization of the church, putting your gifts to use. Maybe that looks like in the context of your daily life or in your vocation, serving. But surely you've been given gifts so that the body of Christ, the church, may be edified. And that in and through that, God will be glorified. I mean, Peter's taking this pretty seriously here. He says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. I mean, think about the magnitude of that for a moment as I hold a microphone. (laughs) He's saying, if this is your gift, take it seriously if anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides. As you serve others, you don't do it out of what you can muster, you know, from your own energy. You do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who give and give and give and give of themselves without remaining rooted in God, who gives us nutrients and gives us strength and gives us sustenance, deplete themselves. There's only so much that you're capable of a Uh, capable of as a human being, but those that we esteem for their high virtues of love and self-sacrifice are always rooted in God, that their strength doesn't come from what they can muster, but their strength comes from what God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. We don't serve others so that we can receive something I laugh. I I gave Pastor Jerry's award introduction, and, you know, as a staff, we've tried to make a really big deal of it because it's far, few and far between that you get recognized as a pastor for really anything apart from implementing COVID restrictions. But we're making a big deal of it. Why? It's it's a time to celebrate. It's a time to celebrate. You know, I'll speak on behalf of Pastor Jerry. (laughs) Don't know if he's watching. Uh, Or I'll speak for him in the sense that, you know, he gives and gives and gives. And the amount that I watch him give, he couldn't give if it was based on his own or or what he was able to conjure up within himself. He'd be so depleted. He'd be so depleted. I mean, I can speak for many faithful Christian servants in this room who give and give and give of themselves. And you would be so depleted if not for the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. I think we need that reminder, even as we actively serve. Why do we serve? What are we connected to? That said, your gifts are to be used for the edification of the body of Christ in love. And then Peter caps it all off, and he concludes by saying, To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. As he wraps it all up, this little section, this brief moment away from establishing a theology of suffering and into some really good, tangible practice, he praises Jesus Christ. He praises that Jesus Christ is at work in His church and that everything he does is to the praise of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the bridegroom of his church, and let's dial it back to the beginning, who will soon come again. And As we move forward into the future, we need to hear the exhortations to pray with and for each other, to love one another, to be hospitable, and to use our spiritual gifts Because when Christ does return, we will be judged on the lives that we led and how we participated in His redemptive work. According to 1 Peter, how are Christians to oppose persecution? How are Christians supposed to endure their sufferings? By praying. Pray with each other. Pray for each other. Do you want those keys on? <laughs> there they are. How are they supposed to oppose persecution? How are they supposed to endure their sufferings? Love one another. Above all, How are they supposed to endure persecution? How are they supposed to face their sufferings? By showing hospitality to one another, by inviting each other into their homes and eating together. And then by serving one another with their God-given gifts, as doing all of these things brings glory to God. And we remember Peter's call above all, to love each other deeply. And I ask you this morning, I ask you, what does it look like to love the person next to you deeply? What does it look like? There's like a really cute couple back there who looked each other in the eyes. What does it look like to love the person across the room from you deeply? Here on social media this week, I I saw people from this church on one hand, who were like rah-rah truckers, and on the other hand, who were like nah-nah truckers. B- both from this church community, right? So, remember the idols that we make in our lives—our idols of politics, of individuality, of money, of etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When somebody holds to, maybe not idols—they worship the same Christ as you, first and foremost—but they hold other opinions, beliefs, perspectives that you might disagree with like in your guts how is it that you love them if you think the answer is to go find another church where everybody thinks like you you're sorely mistaken and your spiritual development will be absolutely stunted you want to know how that person whose posts that you want to silence, but you just like kind of like, like getting upset all the time when they post something like that. You send that person a message, and you invite them into your home. You love them above all else, as they belong to the family of believers. You pray for them, and you pray with them. You serve them. And as we do this whole sanctuary, we will be a community that behaves differently than the rest of our world. Christians have been known for their love and their hospitality, and perhaps we need to reclaim it. With that said, call Mike on up. We're going to go into a time of communion, a time of the Lord's Supper, Uh, If you didn't get communion elements, oh, Savannah and Chanson are right here. You can throw your hand up. They got communion elements, and they'll hook you up. We're going to go into a time of communion where we look around at the people that we've gathered with, and we eat together. And what this act of eating together does is it symbolizes our unity something that supersedes all of our division it unifies us the bloodline of Christ the broken body of Christ the broken or the, the shed blood of Christ this is like the ultimate practice of what we just talked about here in 1 Peter so as they distribute those elements put your hand nice and high if you if you got missed nice and high let's pray Father God, we come to you today asking that you would remember us during your second coming as you judge the living and the dead. And we acknowledge that you are the savior of the world and that you died on a cross to save us from our sins. We wanna be recaptured by the immediacy of your return so that we may live lives that are blameless and holy with our hearts and minds firmly fixed on you. Father, we repent of our sins of ignoring you and of living by our own power. So renew in us a passion for your mission, that by the power of your Spirit we may labor here to see all people come to know you. And may we, upon seeing you face to face, hear the words we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In the name of Jesus Christ, to him be the glory.